my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Howdy, hey, and hello there. Welcome to another episode of Weird Finance, a show to help you feel a little less weird about money, one conversation at a time. I'm your host, Paco DeLeon, and on this week's episode, I'm chatting with Io Tillett-Wright. Early in my career, I was laid off from two jobs and came close with a third. In each instance, it felt like one person was controlling my livelihood. Even if that wasn't the case, it still felt that way. Today, I can draw a clear line between those fears of scarcity and feeling powerless to the decision to start my own business. Like many young adults in their 20s, scarcity was a common refrain for me. It's a tune that sometimes still gets stuck in my head today, despite my abundant reality. This is something I hadn't anticipated. It hadn't occurred to me that my present inner peace could be derailed by the phantom lack in recent years. But now, in the ripeness of my 30s, I realize that's life's whole damn deal. We must constantly untangle the knots of our past to be free in our present. Io Tillett-Wright is an expert at this type of untangling. He's an author, screenwriter, producer, podcast creator, and friend. Much of his work is an exploration of these knots. From his childhood, where he was constantly steeped in extreme scarcity and poverty, to his peaceful, abundant present. I hope Io will make you believe that no matter what's happened in your past, who you've been, and what you've been through— Safety, security, and inner peace are all things each of us can have and hold on to. Please enjoy my conversation with Io. Io, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. I know you're a busy guy, lots of ideas, always writing. You're you're physically hard to keep up with whenever we're in the same space. So I'm so grateful for your time today. Paco, it's such an honor. I'm so thrilled that you asked me. You are for sure one of the most interesting people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. And I know you probably get that a lot. And, you know, I really admire all of the work that you've done. You live a true artist's life. You are constantly trying to process and share your 
human experience with the world through all of the various ways that you create art. And so I want to start with that. I want to understand the IO sitting before me and how he became the IO sitting before me. But I would love for you to, to talk to me about your upbringing in New York City, in the Bowery in the 80s. And I've heard you describe the landscape of your upbringing as being, quote, completely immersed in addiction and poverty at all times. And here we are just coming out strong, asking the hard questions. <laughs> Talk to me about that. First of all, I need to call you first thing every morning for the sweet pep talk. Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York uh, in like a time that people don't like they read about and see in movies, you know, the, the New York of yore that was just wild. It looked like Beirut after bombing. It was like there was a period in the I think it was like the 60s or 70s where they sold or maybe actually like late 70s, 80s where they sold buildings in the Lower East Side for $1 wow. because they just wanted people to take responsibility for them. And uh, they were all falling down and in complete disrepair. And, the, and it was so dangerous to be there that the only people, also the city was like going bankrupt and had no money for infrastructure. So it was a really dangerous area to be in. So the only people that wanted to be there were artists and addicts. And often those were one and the same. So my parents went there because that was more of a natural enclave for them as, you know, people, their character, which tells you a lot about their personalities. And then separately they went there and then kind of like met and had a fling. And then my mom didn't realize she was pregnant until she was five and a half months in because she was dealing with the grief over the murder of the love of her life by the police, blah, blah, blah. It was just like very high stakes pain and stability and like infrastructure, home, paying bills. These were not things that were really like on the brain for these people. It was more just about, you know, living an authentic life and making things. And everyone was making, you know, the art and culture that really defines the art and culture we live in now. But for a baby born into it, it wasn't a super stable or healthy or balanced place to grow up or try to find ground and stability. So yeah, I mean, do you want me to filter my answers through like a financial lens or just answer? You can answer them however they feel natural for you to answer. If you want to talk about finances with me, you can or, or filter it through that lens, but I'm going to, I'll do the filtering for you when I see fit. As well. Okay, great. Yeah. Love it. Dummy <laughs> daddy. Let's go. <laughs> okay. So you obviously grew up in a culturally rich environment. And that's so clear when I look at how you look at the world and how I look at what you think is important to share and the way that you share it. But you grew up in a very scarce environment from an economic perspective. And so I want to know how that upbringing has shaped your relationship to resources and money? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the center. I grew up in, in government subsidized housing and my family, I mean, there was no family. It was like, I grew up with my mom, very isolated. My mom deals with some mental illness stuff and um, addiction was very prevalent and addiction was very prevalent in the people around us. So we often didn't have the money to buy food or keep the lights on. So, you know, there were things like that where we'd be using candlelight or we never, ever, ever bought furniture or bought clothes or bought anything. You know, the fridge was a kind of a storage unit for like weird Chinese herbal teas and stuff and like more of a sculpture piece <laughs> than it was a utility object. So, yeah, I grew up one of the, the predominant feelings I can remember from my childhood was hunger mm. and kind of concern for where food was going to come from or if I was going to be able to find, you know, I stole a lot of my clothes and like winter was not, it was like an excruciating time because I was just freezing because I didn't have adequate anything. It's very weird and Oliver Twisty for, you know, modern life in 
a major metropolitan city, but my parents made other choices in their lives, you know, and they also both suffered from the disease of addiction. So it just wasn't really a priority was not, oh, we're going to change our lives now because we've had a kid. So my relationship with food and home, I think, are the things that have been impacted the most. And it took me a really long time to figure out what like calm felt like in terms of home mm-hmm. or cal- what calm felt like period, but to discover and, and understand, like I always had this drive to create kind of sanctuary, serene spaces, but I didn't have the money to do that. I remember, you know, in, in any chance that I would get, I would try to, I would hunker down in whatever room that I had and I would do a lot of sleeping because there wasn't a lot of sleep when I was a kid, you know? It took me until recently in the last couple of years to discover the immense peace that comes with having a consistent home and how like really important to my constitution that is and how it's completely changed the work that I do, the drive that I have, the interests that I have, the ways in which I point myself towards stuff and like orient myself in the world, how I interact with my friends. I mean, you know this firsthand, but like I love, love, love having a space to entertain and feed my crew, you know? And that's like a constantly rotating, shifting group of humans who, like yourself, are like inspiring and kind and bring new energy around. So I think, yeah, as an adult, like the house that I grew up in, you couldn't walk in. There was so much crap in it. You like had to kind of shimmy in sideways because my mom collected stuff she found on the street. And I'm kind of the classic situation where like, I am now a neat freak and don't like, I can't go into vintage stores because it gives me agita. You know what I mean? I'm like, no, 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 no. I just want, I want the simplest, cleanest. No, you know? So my house is like super minimal, all neutral colors, natural materials. I've recently gotten into like growing my own fruits and vegetables, which is really a very bizarre turn for a kid from the East Village. I didn't see uh, that one coming, but, but it, I guess it's on brand dad energy big time. Did you see the desert coming? Like it, none of it makes any sense. I lived in Joshua Tree for five years. Like what? Yeah, that's pretty wild. You know, none of it makes any sense. I just, I think I was trying to find what calm felt like and mm-hmm. what there's a, there's a relaxation that comes from finally feeling safe. And feeling stable, Mm -hmm. which for me had a lot to do with feeling financially stable. There's no anxiety. Like, I mean, of course, there's hunger, there's, you know, fear, there's all of those things. But like on a daily functional basis, the anxiety that I've most known to kind of derail my life is a fear of how I'm going to make the ends meet and keep a roof over my head. You know what I mean? Yeah. How did you work through it so that now that you're safe and now that you have a very scarce life, how do you not let that old pattern dominate your behaviors with money today? Give adv- Can you give advice to people who might be coming from a situation where they didn't have, you know, they grew up in scarcity, now they have abundance, but their behaviors are behind. Their behaviors are not aligned with the current reality. Well, again, you know this better than anyone, but from what I can tell, that's most people. Most people I know who are like now living in some degree of abundance compared to where they came from, haven't filed their taxes in several years, don't know what's actually going on, either have hired a business manager if they're like at that level of financial security, or they're just kind of like, oh, I'll do it later. And that to me is completely unmanageable. I once had the IRS, I think I earned I, I lost money where I earned, you know, poverty level wages as like a working artist for, I don't know, until I was like 26 or seven or something. It was like insane. And uh, no, 28, I think when I earned like a thousand dollars over the limit or something, the IRS made me file eight years of tax, like redo, oh, I no. think it was six or eight years of taxes. And that feeling, that anxiety of 
the IRS coming after me and taking like what little I did have burned my ass into gear. I was like, no, 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 never again. Always going to stay on top of my taxes so that like this can never be an actual problem. Because mercifully in that situation, they were like, you owe 20 grand. And I was like, man, I don't have 20 grand. What is and then, and I haven't even earned 20 grand. Like, what are you talking about? And I realized it was just because I hadn't filed. So they were making assumptions based, I don't know, my age, but I have no idea what goes on in that strange society of secret devils. But <laughs> I realized that for my sanity and my peace of mind, I needed to stay on top of one, my taxes and two, my spending because I'm perpetually caught between there's like the devil on my shoulder and the angel on my shoulder are you earned it bro just spend it like buy whatever you want you know and then the other one is like absolutely not because we don't know where it's coming from and we don't know if it's ever going to come back and we don't know and both of those things are really unhealthy sure and there's a middle ground that is realistic that my calm comes from this really psychotic spreadsheet that i have that is my annual PL across my like multiple businesses and personal and everything and once i built it all i have to do is stay on top of it and keep plugging stuff into it and then i, I get kind of a generalized picture of what i've got and where it's a little shorter and where it's a little you know more or you know oh this was a surprise expense or this was you know whatever and i'm not out here being like oh my god i spent 30 extra dollars this month but like you know surprised I got a flat tire and it's 350 extra bucks. Like that's something worth taking note of or surprise. You forgot to pay your property taxes last year and it's six grand extra that you didn't, you know what I mean? Like Ouch. surprises like that. The other thing is I have a savings account that I can't get money out of. Like I would have to do like a wire transfer to get it out of it. And the only times I've ever taken money out of that savings account were to loan it to one of my companies to do like startup kind of work and then send it right back in. And I've always paid myself back. I will always create a credit card for every new project so that I can get the like starter points and then like build my credit. That's like a whole other thing. I learned about credit and I learned about all this stuff. And I was like, so then at some point I had a checking account and a credit account for every project that had already done, like I had already finished. And I was like, what? is going on. I have like nine checking accounts. And so I took all of the money, consolidated it and dumped it into my savings account. And now I have one checking account per business and it helps me just keep everything like realistic and manageable. I guess the, the short answer to this very long winded answer is that if I have oversight, if I have clarity into what the fuck is going on, then I can feel calm on a daily basis. And I'm not just like, winging it and like gonna figure it out later i also don't take on credit card debt like as a rule i will not pay apr period the end full stop scene i pay off every credit card in full at the end of every month no matter what so i just i'm not using it i'm like credit y'all are playing like what is that no 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 that's a farce that's a lie that's built to sink you into debt mm -mm. I'm not using that shit as a loan. If I'm going to use loaned money, borrowed money, I'm going to get a HELOC on a house or I'm going to get something that's like 3% interest or 5% interest max. But I'm not out here doing like 9%, 12%, 20% APR on shoes. Right. No, never. Because that will sink me. You got to use them because they're trying to use you, the credit card companies. That's right. I think this is all wonderful, great advice. Clarity, I love that. I like that you have a psychotic spreadsheet. Very on brand for you, Io. <laughs> How dare you? I can see you maniacally <laughs> updating it uh, on your dining room table. I, it's open right now. I it's bet it is. I bet it is. It's open right now. <laughs> yeah. Mm, I was just sitting here looking at it, wondering what it was going to say to me. And then... You appeared. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. 
Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine, and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, Jamie, congrats on your uh, recent raise. That is awesome. You know, um, I've been thinking about asking for one, too, but honestly, I don't know how to approach it. Can you give me some advice? Of course, Taylor. The key is to be well-prepared and showcase your value to the company. One thing that really helped me was keeping a record of all of my wins, successful projects that impact revenue, and emails from happy clients. Oh, that's a great idea. Wait, but how do I present all of that information to my boss? Show the receipts. You can simply print out emails from customers or folks at the company with any positive feedback. Or you can lay out the metrics and data that show how you've made an impact. Okay, got it. Uh, but what if my boss is hesitant to give me a raise? Don't be discouraged. Be prepared to negotiate and show that you've done your research. Know the industry standard for your role and be ready to discuss why you deserve a raise based on your performance and the value you bring. And if they still don't give it to you, ask them exactly what you'd need to do in order to get one in the next three or so months. Thanks, Jamie. I feel more confident about asking for a raise now. I'll start keeping track of my accomplishments and client feedback right away. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. Weird Finance. So your parents are pretty vehemently anti-capitalist and raised you to be outside of the system or they opted to be outside of the system. And I want to know what it was like for you to then get a mortgage and to start navigating that world. Did you ever feel like in some weird way you were like betraying your parents or going against what their wishes and desires for you were? Betraying my parents? Yes, absolutely. My parents are both punks. My parents are like, like no wave punk musician avant-garde freakazoids. My mom is like, fuck the man on every level. But put it this way, both of them are now like, yo, how'd you do that? Let me get one, you know, about a house. My dad is like, you know, hitting up my mortgage guy to figure out how he can get a loan. And they are anti-capitalists. They want, what they want from me is safety and happiness. Mm -hmm. And they both understand that that involves money to a certain degree. 
So they're not hoping that I live in a cardboard box and disappointed that I've like figured out how to make a living. I do struggle with, it's a weird, you know, you go from being a, I feel like most, most young artists for a certain period of their lives are like, I don't care about money. I just want to make the thing that I want to make. And that's a really important period to go through. And everyone who's over, you know, 30 something usually is like, mm-hmm, sure, <laughs> sweetheart, you know, like you don't care about money now, but once you have real things to pay for that you care about or like, sure, you don't care about money if you've never driven a nice car. But then once you drive a nice car, you're like, damn, I can't feel the road vibrating through my butthole. I might like to do this every day, you know, and then you care about money because you got to get it somehow. Yeah. If you've never tasted luxury, you don't want, you're, you're not like, I got to have this. But once you do, it's hard to choose the like rattling 1982 Toyota Corolla, which is what I had, peanut, RIP, peanut. Peanut get the ladies or what? Yeah. Just, yeah. 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 Peanut, peanut really brought in the ladies until they would get in the car and then they'd be like, mm, holler at me when you have a car that anything works in. It's not a death trap. Yes, to a certain degree. So I struggle, I sometimes struggle with that, but I, I also like, I'm making a book right now called First Home that is about people who don't come from wealth, who bought homes and how they did it. It's opened an interesting conversation in the work. You know, I was talking to one guy, he's a black man and he's a financial advisor and he used to work at a hedge fund. And he was saying that gentrification is only a downside if you're not participating in it. Mm. I was like, well, that's one perspective, but that's a complex, sure. complex take, my guy. <laughs> but his point is, or one of the one of the things that I took from his point is that the people who live in neighborhoods should be participating in the healthy, nurturing growth that happens in those neighborhoods. I don't agree with his overall point. Or it's not that simple, certainly. I think that home ownership is one of the main entry points to intergenerational wealth and financial security in this country. Mm-hmm. And also it's like a, a leg up in terms of like how this country values your citizenship. Mm. Home ownership kind of you as a homeowner, there in a certain number of ways, like your your presence in this country is more valued kind of on paper, it's don't ask me to break that down, but you get what I'm saying. Totally. I want more people to experience the feeling of calm that I've experienced from owning my own home and also the headaches. Goddamn plumbing is a bitch, but also the financial freedom of owning property. When you're not giving the largest majority stake in your income to someone else's mortgage you're investing in yourself in a way it's like meditation it sends a signal to your brother going to the gym it sends a signal to your brain that you're taking care of yourself one two as that home accrues value you can pull chunks of money out of that house that i never imagined were possible that facilitated a, a leap from poverty level existence. You know, I have $200 in my bank account or I have $60 in my bank account and I have no idea where the next whatever is going to come from to actually having, you know, stocks or having investment things or having um, a rental property, you know, like an Airbnb, like things like that only came to me. Like I got a book deal and I decided to use that chunk of money that I got from my first installment of my book deal, instead of spending it, I was like, I can still live poor man style until the next installation comes in. But this first installation I'm going to use to buy a house because that's always been my goal. And you've been to that house. It was, but in the beginning, it was like a bombed out wreck. And I did the thing where I bought a bombed out wreck. I learned how to fix it up. I borrowed money to fix it up. I hired workers who were not as expensive as other workers. I cut corners. I fixed it up and I increased the value on that house. I discovered what a cash out refinance was, which I was like, wait, hold on. I'm sorry. And I literally went to the merch guy and I was like, sorry, sorry, sorry. 
back up, sit down. What? You're going to give me money for the house that I already own. Like, you know, like street rat me was like, I don't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth right now. And he was like, yeah, it's called the cash out refinance. We're going to give you the gap. You know, we're going to give you the value, 80% of the value of your house. We'll give it to you in cash and you just pay us back like a normal mortgage. And I was like, <laughs> so I got all the money that I spent on the house and all the money that I paid to fix it up back in the bank. And then I owed them $1,200 a month on a five bedroom house in an Airbnb town. Yeah. And I was like, I don't, this is wild. So I parlayed that and did it again and again and again and again and again and used that as like the base nut of like my financial wellness now. And I want everyone to have that opportunity to like understand what's possible because I didn't, nobody taught me that shit. I just like was like dogged in my pursuit of that information but the whole system is there. It's built, it's there. And like, why more queer people and people of color and immigrants are not participating in it is largely due to extreme information gate- gatekeeping. Mm-hmm. So I would like to do what I can to change that and like give that information out and be like, no, yes, yes, you can. You too. Like I've had friends be like, oh, dude, I earned $26,000 on paper last year. And I'm like, guess what that qualifies you for? A $200,000 house, my guy. And they're like, what? A lot of those friends are homeowners. You've seen me do the dad spiel at the kitchen table a thousand times. I appreciate you sharing this. And I remember going with you to some of these bombed out places, you know, trying to keep up with you as you're checking out all these spots and figuring out, you know, where you're going to post up and rebuild next. So it's been it's been amazing to watch and it's really exciting that you're going to put your experience out there. I mean, of course you are, it's, it's what you do. The advance that you got and how that impacted your life. Does that keep you in books? Is there some sentimentality to how that one book blew, blew open everything for you or you just like love to make books or maybe it's a combination of all of the things, but I'm just saying that because there's much more money in like television or you know, things outside of books. So why do you keep choosing books? There's not a lot of money in books, man. <laughs> books are not, books are not, like literally when talking to the photographer on this new book that I'm making, like we're looking for people to work on it, the email goes, and this is the budget because dot, 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 books. books. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody knows books are not a banger way to make money. I mean, they can be if sure. you're, I don't know, Cheryl Strait or something and you're writing wild like yeah you're doing okay you pray love you're doing great but coffee table books generally speaking my first book was a literary memoir and it was a hundred thousand words about my crazy childhood and it was a different animal and it paid differently you know it was like a real book deal for a real literary book and it was um I was lucky enough where it was like life shifting, life shifting money for me. Um, those books for me don't just like pop out. It's not something I can enter into casually. So I haven't done another one. <laughs> big, big plans to eventually, but like my best friend just did one and he's just like bashing his head into the wall every day that he was doing that. He was just like, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me, shoot me. Like writing a book is so hard. So (laughs) the books I've now made, uh, Darling Day Self Evident Oasis, three books. I've made three like, like major publishing houses, house books. And I've made, uh, at least two like independently published books of my photography, um, which clearly that's like $4 you make on that, but it's just like a great, I love them. They're some of my favorite things I've ever made. But um, the the book I'm making now is a coffee table book, and I or like a it's like half practical guidance, half I'm tricking people by making it like a sexy coffee table book, but actually it's like a practical guide. Um, those books don't. There's no money there. You know, <laughs> it's like they're just. I'm making it because it's really important that this information is in the world, but it's just like. It's a little, little ancillary, like 
little cash. It's like, you know, pocket change to go to the store with. It's not, you know, because the cost of making a book like that, me and the photographer going to like 20 houses and me interviewing and researching and da 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 it pays for my time to work on it almost, yeah. <laughs> you know, but like not really in the long run. I just think it's really important. You know, I recently had, I was working on a, I also make podcasts, right? And one of the show that I made about a murder in my family got um, option to become a, a TV show. Oh, shit. And I was writing it. Well, thank you. And it didn't make it through it. We did two and a half years. We were with a major network and then TV went belly up and the whole TV industry has changed and they decided to pass on it, which is not something I guess people usually talk about. But I'm like, no, it's interesting because it it gave me this moment of, I think for the two and a half years that I was working on it, I had, I was like, okay, cool. I'm going to make this show and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to start a company and blah, 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 blah. And it was, I'm going to fill the elevator with my people and mm-hmm. we're going to ride this to the moon, which is always kind of my plan with whatever I'm doing. But when it didn't go, I had this moment sitting in my garden. I bought this house in Altadena. I could tell you the financial like loop-de-loos I did to be able to pull off buying a house in Los Angeles. But basically I sold something in Joshua Tree and 1031 exchanged into a house here and never would have been able to do it if I hadn't. And hadn't gotten the low interest rates of two years ago and it facilitated me having like a home that's just my home and not partially part-time an airbnb for the first time in my life that's the like real raw truth and when the show didn't go i sat in my garden and i had this moment where i asked myself i got to ask myself an extremely luxurious question what would bring me joy and I got to actually sit and think about that and then ask myself if I had the cojones to act on the answer. And because the answer was equally as much community oriented social work, like social, not social work, but like social service work, community work, emergency response work direct action activism as it is any kind of entertainment work. And that's, I think, just part of coming from poverty. It's part of being queer. It's part of being Jewish. It's part of, I don't know why. I don't know what the fuck, but like, I'm of the people. I'm, I'm for us by us. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel you. I there will always be a hole in my life. I know you do. I know you do. <laughs> there will always be a hole in my life if if things are not oriented towards the community. So in terms of like the books that I make, it's not always about money. Yeah, I appreciate that. I didn't write uh, Finance for the People to to get rich either. I felt very, very compelled to set this information free at a price point that could be free if you got it at the library. So mm-hmm. um I guess I shouldn't have expected any other answer from you (laughs) except that. So I'm curious if in your experience, like being part of a marginalized community has impacted your own sense of self-worth. You seem like a very confident guy to me and you've always been confident. Whenever I talk to you about business, you're always like, get the money. Do you have any... Like, (laughs) were you always that way? And get the money. Yeah. Do you, uh, you know what I mean? Like has being in a, in a marginal group ever made you like your sense of confidence and worth? Has it ever made it waver? I guess is what I'm asking. There are two different things for me. My self-worth. Absolutely. It's damaged my sense of self-worth. It only started to damage my confidence when I saw what people what put it this way. I have zero doubt I can execute any and everything that I put my mind to because I also have really good boundaries around what I'm not good at. I'm like, I'm not going to fucking sing. No, I'll break the windows. Like, no way. But if I tell you I can do something, it's because I know that I can knock it out of the park or figure out how to. And I 
and I came face to face with areas in which people just wouldn't give me the benefit of the doubt that they would give to other people. And that damaged not much my confidence, but my confidence in the system of gatekeepers that provide me employment opportunities in creative spaces. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that because when I look at somebody like you and when I talk to you and you're, you're so confident, you know, you don't fake the funk. And I do, I do sometimes wonder, you know, do you have those moments that I have where you feel like, why don't they value me the way that I value me, you know? And do you let that get to you? So I appreciate you sharing that with me. Oh my God, yes, absolutely. I mean, when I put out my book, it was something that I worked on, my first book. I worked on it for almost four years in total. It's a really long time to work on something. And poured my literal heart and soul and everything into it. And then I came out right as the book was coming out and all of the press only wanted to talk about that. They didn't talk about my writing. Right. They didn't talk about my story. They didn't talk about what I had survived. They reduced me to the circus monkey and it's devastating. And when people lead with my identity, they perceive to be my identity. It shows me that they don't see me as a human. They mm-hmm. see me as an as a something they've heard on CNN. At mm-hmm. this point in my life, but I'm really not out here talking about it with people because it is a mountain to climb. It's an extra mountain to climb for me of things that other people project onto me. Like when my TV show didn't go, they were like, oh, it's feeling too indie. It's a fucking murder mystery about some eccentric artists in the 80s in the East Village, but it's a murder mystery. What's indie about it? Me. Mm. And what's indie about me? This very normative binary dude, you fill in the blanks. Yeah. So yeah. like, yeah, it's depressing and it's an uphill battle and it's like a a thing that friends and I talk about all the time where we're like, wow, are we ever going to be perceived as the creators that we are or always with this caveat, highly politicized thing first? So I try to stay away from it as much as I can. Wow. Thank you, Ayo. All right, Ayo. Before I let you jump here, I want to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Hit me. Tell me, is there something that you've purchased that maybe from the outside or the naked eye perceives it as frivolous, but for you feels like it's money well spent? Frivolous purchases are really not my bag, but I bought a nice car. Okay. I spend like 60% of my daily, my waking life in it. So it felt like a really smart purchase to buy something that felt really good to be in. I did notice your nice car because we have the same nice car for sure. And I was like, look at us driving around nice cars. (laughs) These two clowns. (laughs) These two clowns. Okay. What's one piece of advice, financial or otherwise, that you'd give to your younger self? It's going to be okay. It's going to find its way. You're resourceful you're going to figure it out. I love that. Did you have any financial superstitions growing up? Mm, that I was going to be inordinately wealthy. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's a premonition. No superstitions? Okay, superstitions. Uh-uh. <laughs> Find a penny, pick it up all the day, you'll have good luck. Okay, and you did it. Every time. If it was heads up. If it was heads up. If it was tail, uh, tails up, no, 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 no. We, we don't need that. What about now? Do you do it now? Yeah. Okay, last one. Do you have any financial fumbles that you can look back on and laugh at? Yeah. Look back on and laugh at. Well, there's one that still hurts a little too much, which is that I renovated a house without permits and then got caught and it cost me a lot of money. That's rough. And it really hurts. And I'm still not out of it. The house is still sitting there with no power and it's very painful. Expensive tuition on that one. Mm. That's my balls getting kicked in right now for two years straight. (laughs) I like that one unless you have a different one you want to share. I once got a very expensive speeding ticket. That was really stupid. How much was it? It's a really funny story. You want to hear that? I do, yeah. It's $475. I was... uh, I was in Texas for the first time 
And I was driving to Marfa with my then girlfriend in a rental car, which I didn't know could go this fast. And all of a sudden, a cop flags us down, pulls us over, and pulls his gun on us and is yelling at me to get out of the car. I get out of the car. My hands are up. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I'm in Texas. Those motherfuckers are gunpointing at me. What's going on? He's like, is there an emergency? I'm like, no. He's like, what? Are you going to the hospital? I'm like, what? No. And he's like, do you know how fast you're going? I was like, no. And he goes, 135. (laughs) Bro, that's really fast. But that's also one hell of a It was a really long, straight road. What are you going to do? I know. I was like, calm down. He's like, this is a felony. I could put you in jail right now. And then he goes, do you have anything in the car I should know about? And I said, my girlfriend. And he was like, she was black. And I was like, oh, God, you know, we're in Texas. And then he goes, is there anything in the trunk before I open it? And I said, well, there's a purple unicorn pinata that's for my mom's birthday. (laughs) And he was like, get the fuck out of here. Oh, bless white privilege. He gave me a speeding ticket and let me go. But it was $475. And I definitely kicked myself in the teeth for that. Because I was like, why did you, like, you just didn't need to do that. Yeah, that you know? I got a speeding ticket with a rental car too. And then afterwards, you know, I thought about a good argument. Maybe I wouldn't argue with the cop who pulls a gun on me. But the argument that I thought about afterwards was like, oh, officer, this isn't my normal car. It's a rental car. And I didn't realize how heavy the gas was or light the gas was whatever if it happens again i'm going to try that excuse but hopefully it won't happen again you know like it's not your that's, car you're that's not used the to full it. extent of the excuse yeah like you're not yeah, used that's to a it good excuse yeah i thought it was going to go somewhere but oh. that's a great excuse <laughs> thank you io thank you like i wasn't used to it and my grandma's dying <laughs> okay you know yeah 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 leave it to i wasn't the story used to it guy. babe act like you're giving birth yeah, yeah. Give it to the, leave it to the story <laughs> guy to really weave a tale there. Io, is there anything you want to promote while you're here? Maybe come back when you have the book ready about calm and happiness. Thing? Okay, <laughs> Io would like to promote calm and happiness sure. to everybody listening today, and I would also like to co-sign on that. Growing your own vegetables. There you go. If folks want to find you on social media or anywhere on the internet, where should they follow you? Really, it's just Io loves you on Instagram at this point. I deleted Twitter. And what is even a Facebook, you know? No TikTok for you, huh? I don't, I still genuinely don't know what a TikTok is, so I can't help you there either. I don't, I'm not dancing these days, so I'm off of that thing. (laughs) You know, there's always time. There's always time for your second act. Mm, For me to save the last dance. (laughs) (laughs) I still got it, Paco. Oh, you never lost it. still make you laugh. You never lost it, my boy. Thank you for coming on here, Io. I love you. Thanks for having me. I love you too. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
And now it's time for the economic update with financial astrologer Susan Goodell. Susan is our resident economic cosmonaut that does what many humans have done before us for thousands of years. She looks to the stars to better understand our economic present and to predict our financial futures. Hi, Susan. It's wonderful to have you back to walk us through your June economic update. Well, great to be here, Paco. And June looks kind of interesting. We start off kind of mid-month. Not Nothing really big happens until Pluto turns retrograde in back into Capricorn. It's already retrograde, but it's in Capricorn now starting June 10. And Pluto, the great transformer, is back in Capricorn to kind of do some cleanup in terms of transforming business and government. Uh, it's been in Capricorn since 2008. It snuck into Aquarius in mid-March this year. And so we got a little taste of what Pluto in Aquarius might be like, which is transforming technology and humanity. So all this conversation about AI when Pluto moves into Aquarius for good at the end of 2024. But starting on June 10, Pluto's retrograding back into Capricorn. So we're going to spend a few months till January of next year doing some cleanup work <laughs> in terms of transforming business and government. More news about same old, same old stuff that we've been talking about for since the financial crisis in 08. Susan, can I ask you a quick question about what this could possibly look like? Because when I hear you talk about like, you know, government... And, and regulations and things like that, my mind immediately is like perhaps something like crypto look, being looked at by the SEC or being regulated a little bit more heavily, or even maybe what's going on with AI in terms of everybody just being worried. And, and there is, you know, a little bit of talk of figuring out a way to to regulate it. Is is that maybe, I mean, I know you it's hard for you to say exactly what will happen, but thematically, is that, could that be something to look out for? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and particularly in the uh, when the Pluto and Capricorn arena uh, happens, certainly I think Bitcoin's back in the table in terms of regulation. And I think the AI regulation might wait until Pluto gets more into Aquarius. But certainly the Pluto retrograde is the time to kind of take a deep breath and review what's going on. You know, it moved pretty quickly in the last few months. And so Pluto going retrograde is a time to review all of that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. So the Fed meets June 13, 14. We'll see what happens with interest rates. And that may be related to the debt ceiling. It might be related to inflation. It might be related to bank crises generally. Uh, we'll have to see. But the day, two days after, uh, Saturn turns retrograde on June 17. And Mercury squares Saturn, and so there might be some sort of harsh reaction to whatever the Fed does on the 13th, 14th. Okay. Uh, just because that's a, a hard aspect between Mercury and Saturn, the rule maker. Then there's always the summer solstice, June 21, when the sun moves into Cancer, and that's always a big time to look for a potential, quote, unquote, change of trend in markets. So that's a big thing. And then just a few days later, what's a really cool date to, to just kind of see what happens. I'm really interested. Uh, June 26, a fellow who wrote a book in 1992, this is 31 years ago, Christopher Carillon, book called The Spiral Calendar. It's a great book. He picked June 26, 2023 as a date to watch for top in the stock market because it relates by lunar cycle to the high in 1929 and the high in 1987, two that preceded the biggest crashes in the stock market this country has ever seen. So really fascinating, I think, that someone that once again has taken an astrological thing, lunar cycles, and figured out mathematically, it's a really complex math, math problem, that one, that these two highs are related, and two, that the next one that is also related is coming up at the end of June. Well, I am nervous, Susan. That piece of information makes me a little bit nervous, not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, no, me too. Particularly when at the end of June, another cool thing that I just recently discovered working on some of debt ceiling issues is that Jupiter will be at nine degrees of Taurus. And the last time we had a debt ceiling crisis was in 2011, 12 years ago. So a full Jupiter cycle. So lo and behold, the debt ceiling crisis in 2011, the Congress passed the bill, signed it into law, everything hunky-dory, all when Jupiter was at nine degrees of Taurus. Yet it didn't stop the stock market from dropping 17%, and it didn't stop Standard & Poor's downgrading the U.S. credit rating for the first time in 70 years to AA plus from AAA. Hmm. So once again, from June 30, which is a Friday, end of a month, end of a quarter, going into essentially a holiday weekend, that I'm also going to be on watch for, okay, well, even whatever happens with the debt ceiling between by the end of June, to look for a potential credit downgrade again, because Jupiter is in the same degree range it was the last time that happened. A lot of stuff going on. And like you say, maybe not so pretty. Yeah, not so cute. But uh, my expectations have fully been managed. You Last month when we talked, you said May was going to be wonderful. May has been beautiful, and I appreciate that. But uh, uh, all good things shall pass. And as we go into June, let's stay vigilant and uh, manage our expectations of kind of maybe a shit show. Maybe just a lot of things moving around, a lot of chaos, a lot of uncertainty, which I guess is pretty par for the course here, right? Yeah, and you know we'll get back into that Pluto Capricorn vibe of oh yeah we've got to we've still got to fix this don't we? Hmm. Okay, what do we have to do? So most of that grunt work is going to happen between now and January. Well, there's some good news. We got some some fixing happening there on the back end. Yeah. All right, Susan. Well, I hope you that your June treats you well, despite what the stars are telling us. And uh, I guess we'll see you in July. That sounds great. Thank you again for listening to Weird Finance. If you like the show, please express that like by giving us a positive review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help us out a lot. And if you'd like to receive even more content from me, you can sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Nerd Letter. Each week, I'll send you a short email of things I've read and recommend. Sign up for it at thehellyagroup.com. Here we are at the end of another episode of Weird Finance, an iHeartMedia production, and just would not be possible without the help of many wonderful, caring, hardworking, and talented folks like my producer, Ramsey Yunt. He produced, edited, did some sound design, and he even sang a little bit on this episode. Thank you so much to Susan Goodell for her expertise and guidance on this episode's economic outlook. And to my new friends, Annie and Samantha from the Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast, Thank you so much for lending your voices for our special PSA. Our theme song was written and performed by me and my dear, dear friends, Jenna Parker and Andrew Parker. If you have any comments, questions about money, suggestions, or you want to be a part of the show, give us a call at 833-ASK-PACO. That's 833-275-7226. Or send us an email at weirdfinancepod at gmail.com. That's it. We'll catch you here next week. In the meantime, take care. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. 
The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.